when Rose makes the mistake of trusting Sophia with a very important task, it's no surprise it doesn't go as expected. Instead of opening an investment account, Sophia comes home with a boxer, and we don't mean of the dog variety. The girls are soon convinced that they'll make not just their money back, but a significant profit. So they agree to be the fighter's manager. Things are all on track until they learn that Kid Pepe is a multi-hyphenate. Will Pepe throw the fight to save his hands and his chance at getting into Juilliard? Will the girls get their money back? Will we ever understand how they can sleep in such restrictive sleepwear? All of that and more in today's episode, Fiddler on the Ropes. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our things. No matter the misters that come. Today's title is inspired by the stories written in 1905, the musical from 1965, and the film from 1971, Fiddler on the Roof, the roof being replaced with ropes, ropes being the ropes surrounding a boxing ring. The theme of Fiddler on the Roof is about a poor Jewish milkman who is faced with the challenge of marrying off his five daughters amidst the growing tension in his village. Maybe it's indigestion. Uh, no, Golda, I'm asking you a question. You're a fool. I know. Or at least that's what Wikipedia and Google told me, since I don't know the story whatsoever. But trying to compare it, I can only guess that the stress of following one's passion is a theme between the film and this episode? Or perhaps it was just the fiddler aspect with wordplay. Who knows? It's a quiet night at the house on Richmond Street, where in the kitchen we find Rose in a pink sweater and light khakis, and Dorothy in a purple patterned tunic and a light purple skirt. As Dorothy works on the stove, Rose is setting up the table. Coming in hot from the back secret door is the Riddler. <laughs> Riddler! Riddle me this! Oh, that's Blanche, coming home from a Batman musical audition, perhaps. Storming through the kitchen, Blanche starts out with almost compliments, telling the girls that they are her most trusted advisors. After throwing her purse on the rarely used kitchen desk, she asks them if she's efficient at her job. What is the kitchen desk for? Is that for talking to a plumber on the phone? Well, no, because the phone is over by the island in the back door. So what, what are we doing here? I think it's Writing just down the recipes? pile of crap. You oh, gotta it's put the spot. Yeah, you gotta put the mail and the keys and the purse. We have one of those areas just inside the front door. We certainly do. It's just jam packed. It's awful. A lot of different strata. I'm of sorry, things. I'm a hoarder, level three. I've added to that pile as well. You certainly have. It's, our it's own a family, family pile. pile. Rose doesn't hesitate to answer. She may not be able to judge firsthand, but based off of the noises of screeches and squeaks that she's heard coming from Blanche's room she'd have to guess that she is damn near spectacular at what she does. Since Blanche hadn't been specific with her question, Rose didn't realize that she was asking about her job at the museum, not her job of lovemaking. 
Dorothy jumps in to help redirect, supporting Blanche's work. For crying out loud, you've been at the museum for five years, she tells her. Without saying it's the reason she's asking, Blanche shares the concern that her boss has been hovering over her shoulder recently, and it's really freaking her out. Without saying it's the reason she's asking, Blanche shares the concern that her boss has been hovering over her shoulder recently, and it is freaking her out. Dorothy attributes his behavior to Blanche's fondness for the ultimate boss-distracting duo, a low-cut shirt and a push-up bra. Still furious, for reasons not fully known, Blanche Kittenheel stomps her way to the sink. After she throws down a towel, she talks about throwing in the towel and retiring. She'll have to see if she can do that at 49.50. With a coy eye roll, it's clear Blanche is trying to get the girls to support her age delusion. Dorothy hears 49.50 and wonders aloud if that's the address for the Social Security office, as it couldn't possibly be her age. Well, Blanche, in 1983, the retirement age was raised from 65 to 67. Now, for someone born after 1960, the age is 62. And for people born in Gen X or later, well, we have no hope of ever retiring, so we might as well live our lives to the fullest, as there is no hope for the future. Anytime Blanche lies about her age, I am reminded of one of my favorite lines, maybe from any film ever from Jennifer Lopez's Marry Me, where they had her assistant say in earnest, well, have a listen for yourself. Kat Valdez is a legend, self-made. Now she's a woman north of 35 in a business that marginalizes women at any age. People love their artists to bare their souls and vilify them if they go too far. Well, I'm not going to let them do that to her. So she was born in 69. Nice. She's currently 54, and that movie was, what, two years yeah, ago that they were filming? So 52. And 52 technically is north of 35. So yes, Blanche is also north of 35. Dorothy Peshaw's Blanche's tantrum. We have all had frustrating days at work. It doesn't mean you quit. Now sit down, shut up, and have some lasagna. Thinking about retirement, Rose just can't imagine doing it. She stays so busy with work and problem solving. She's worried that if she wasn't working, her brain might start to get weak. Barely mustering sincerity, Dorothy tells Rose to not say such things. Bringing the bread basket to the table, Blanche seems to agree with them. She just wishes she had savings or other finances to support her if she ever needed to quit or retire. But that was never her bag, baby. Surprisingly, Dorothy has the same math skills as Blanche and myself. She was so unsure about keeping her checkbook balanced that she let Stan run their finances. A man so bad at math, he had to take off all of his clothes if he was going to count to 21. Hey-o. This joke earns a grin from Blanche and a delayed, oh, from Rose. Coco, it's fun because you'd have to get naked to count to 20. Hmm. I'm sorry to, because bu of my I'm sorry to toe. bully you. Well. Straight on personal attack. I Full would say, force. yeah, more like 19 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, no. It's small. What? <laughs> okay, what are you uh, mocking me bodily about? Yeah. <laughs> My toe. Yeah. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I, if you haven't listened to this show before, I had my toe cut off a couple of years ago uh, for personal reasons. And <laughs> she likes to make fun Please. of me about it. Please respect my family's privacy at this at difficult this time. time. <laughs> yes. 
my little piggy's dead. <laughs> but it saved your life. Allowing Stan to handle the money could have also been attributed to the times. For crying out loud, neither she nor any other woman could have a bank account or credit card in their own name until 1974. That's like a couple years before you were born. Was it last week we talked about adoption? Mm-hmm. And that my, my mom was very young and she had me? Hearing that makes me really understand sort of the world that it, that it was then when she had to do that. Four years after the law is changed, the Credit Equity Act, four years later, she's pregnant. I bet even still it was probably quite difficult. You know you had some stubborn people, men, oh. men in those banks that were like, well... Yeah, it's the law, but you're, you're so pretty. young. You're too pretty for a bank account. Yeah, you don't need to handle all this nasty money. It turns out the ladies are all stressed about finances because they just put their money together and opened a savings account known as a Certificate of Deposit, or CD, which, according to ConsumerFinance.gov, is an account with a specific interest rate. You earn money by putting the money in the account, which you agree to not withdraw from for some amount of time. If you do, you'll have to pay a fee. So the rates vary, but the interest is usually alluringly higher than what you would get in a regular account so that you won't want to take your money and you'll want to put the money into the bank. Then the bank can say, oh my gosh, we have so much money in our bank. We should build a pipeline or like destroy democracy. Yay, banks. Leave them alone. They've been <laughs> through enough. You leave they are recognized alone. as people. Still not learning a lesson from the reservation mix-up at the nudist camp or, you know, living with Rose every day, she was put in charge of taking their money to the bank and opening the CD account. It's only when Dorothy inquires about the daily interest rate that she learns Rose wound up going to work. She then passed the literal bucks, the 3,000 bucks, to Sophia. Somehow it seems asking Rose to go was a better choice than asking Sophia. While Rose might have lost the money or put it into an incorrect account, Sophia might come back with magic beans, a la Jack and the Beanstalk. Blanche reassures Dorothy that Sophia isn't a dummy or a monster. 3000 is nothing to scoff at, so she'll do the right thing. So, of course, right in that moment, a beige floral dress and pink cardigan donning Sophia enters the kitchen. And before anyone can ask about the bank, she asks them to not get mad. Everyone knows that things have gone poorly. To answer Dorothy's question, no, she didn't go to the bank. Instead, Sophia made a deal with a man at a bus stop. She used the money to buy a boxer. And she doesn't mean a dog. She means a boxer, as in a fighter, as in Pepe, who has come bursting into the kitchen. I don't know. I'm an okay sort of person. How did I get such a smart-ass kid? He got pregnant. For Sophia, buying a fighter was as smart of a purchase as putting the money in the bank. In just a week, they'll be worshipping the ground she walks on. Dorothy somewhat agrees, except she thinks that they'll be looking down on the ground that Sophia's buried under. The girls wonder why next week matters, but Sophia decides to show them instead of telling them. Approaching Pepe, she asks him what happens next week. He responds in Spanish with, what? Or, que? To simplify, or perhaps because she doesn't know Spanish and she's doing that American yell at the person who speaks another language because they must be stupid thing, she says, boom, boom, to which he replies, kill Gonzalez, and throws some jabs. Playing Pepe is Chick Venera, 
After a stint in Vietnam via the Army's Special Services Division, he returned home and pursued the arts. As an actor, dancer, and musician, he first appeared in Greece on Broadway. His acting skills went from stage to screen, then behind the camera for voiceover work. He would eventually become a teacher of acting. Some of his credits include Thomas Jefferson Hooker, which is T.J. Hooker's birth name, Different Strokes, Night Court, Karate Kid, The Untouchables, Mad About You, Jag, La Heat. He appeared in plenty of made-for-TV movies and was a big voice actor, voicing for Bonkers, Darkwing Duck, Batman, Pinky and the Brain, Cow and Chicken, and basically every other TV show that kept me from getting homework done as a child. He was in our personal favorite, Coco, Beyond Belief, Factor Fiction, as Mr. Goth, and he will be back as Mr. Enrique Mas in season five. How exciting. It is. I like Pepe. Yes, he's very likable. To get some privacy while she talks herself out of the poor purchase decision, Sophia asks Pepe to go for a run. Again, since he doesn't appear to speak English or understand it, Sophia decides to scare him with the oh boy of immigration, Pepe, immigration, as though he were in the States illegally and would need to run from being deported. You can't say that. Now that Pepe is off and running, Sophia goes back to convincing the girls she didn't screw them out of their money. She starts with a pretty good point, which is that win or lose, they're going to make 10 grand off of Pepe's upcoming fight. How is that possible? Well, Blanche, it's possible because the purse for the fight is $10,000. The girls invested $3,000 into Pepe, and they'll walk away with an extra seven. According to Wikipedia, a purse bid is an initial step in arranging a professional boxing match involving the fight's promoter. All interested registered promoters may bid on the amount of the purse. So basically, the purse is the prize. Actually, the girls will be making more money than a regular promoter because Sophia is taking advantage of Pepe's language barrier and only giving him 20% of the cut. I wasn't able to find what the expected percentage for a fighter would be, but Sophia, that is mean and I think racist or just like awful. That's predatory behavior is what it is. There it is. Thank you. Predatory. And we don't like that. We like the predator. Now I got to put a predator sound in here. (laughs) Thank you. Darn. I have to watch the predator today. Danny Glover, Gary Busey, Ruben Blades, Maria Conchita Alonso, Bill Paxton. Predator 2. He's in town with a few days to kill this Thanksgiving. To no one's surprise, Dorothy is not on board with this plan. She wants Pepe to be taken back. Sophia is curious where exactly back is, as it's not like she can just go return him to a store. The only giving back on a fighter she can think of would be Robin Givens, who we spoke about just a few episodes ago. And less than a month before this episode aired, she filed for divorce from her abusive husband, Mike Tyson, on Valentine's Day, 1989. Dorothy is still not convinced and certainly doesn't think this will pay out as easily as it sounds. So they'll put everything on hold until tomorrow, after the girls have had the chance to look into this on their own. Until then, Sophia will be having a slumber party with Dorothy because Pepe is staying in her room. It's one thing to own a boxer. It's quite another to be housing one. Sophia tells them that it's all part of the training routine. She calls Pepe back in to ask if he likes Italian food. But when he responds with another, okay, she goes right back to the boom boom kill Gonzalez routine. 
The next morning, the training and research has begun. While Sophia, in blue pants, her yellow plaid shirt, and light blue and yellow flower cardigan, armed with only oven mitts, holds up her tiny little hands for Pepe in a sexy 1980s sleeveless sweatshirt and red sweatpants so he can practice striking. Dorothy is on the phone to a mystery fight expert inquiring about one Kid Pepe. Whomever Dorothy has spoken to has put her on hold. So she, in her pink, vertically striped art teacher smock, and Rose, in a colorful sailboat-adorned sweater, wait on the couch. Sophia is transitioning from the physical training to verbal. Forgetting that Pepe doesn't speak English, she starts to tell him that there are three things to remember when it comes to fights. One, you cover your face. Two, you keep your head down. Three, keep moving at all times. Rules that you can also use if you're ever in a very specific clam bar in Little Italy. I don't think she means that these moves can keep you from being targeted by the mob so much as they keep you from being sick at the clam bar, but maybe it's a mix of both. I thought it was something to do with like people going crazy, buffet clam style. crazy. Yeah, like they they're maybe so, it's that, but I don't know. I well, you know I what? I couldn't tell. That joke is kind of like the epitome of this episode. It's kind of halfway to a joke. Yeah. Yeah. To get Pepe in a mood, although it seems like more of a sexy or sad one than a fighting one, Sophia turns up the solo violin that is somberly playing from the boombox on the coffee table. As she turns it up, a flustered Dorothy tells her not to as she is finally off of hold. And she's getting good news. Kid Pepe is indeed scheduled to fight next week and their contract is legit. Now that they're moving forward with the plan, the next thing to do is to hire a cut man, which Dorothy will do after getting her dry cleaning. Hearing how ridiculous her life has become, Dorothy stops and stares off into the distance for a moment. A cut man is the protector of the fighter, not like the guy who goes into the ring to take over the fight, but the guy who is in the corner who does the watering and the band-aiding and all of that stuff. You know what? There's no need to pretend that we can or want to talk about sports here. Okay, so do you remember in Zoolander when they had the walk-off and then Hansel needs his eyelashes trimmed so he can see? It's like that, but violent and ugly. You gotta cut me. I can't see him blind out there. So now all the ladies have to do is wait until the following Tuesday, the night of the fight. When Rose asks what they'll do after the fight, Sophia quickly suggests that they upgrade to a heavyweight fighter. A heavyweight being a fighter who weighs over 200 pounds. Pepe is actually a welterweight coming in at 147 pounds. When the girls give Sophia a look of, are you crazy? She lowers her expectations to getting a middleweight, which is a fighter coming in at 160 pounds. And she'll throw in a new microwave for the house. While this is all silly, strange, and fun now, Dorothy is not interested in becoming the next Don King, probably the most famous Bride of Frankenstein hair-having boxing promoter of all time. Their management dreams end after the fight. Dorothy even wishes that they didn't have to do this fight, which she has only agreed to in hopes of getting her $3,000 back. After the fight, though, it is adios or goodbye, Pepe. Pepe takes Dorothy's words literally and begins to see himself out the door, Sophia is able to stop him, though, and gets him focused on the fighting. Thinking about the money they should be coming into in a few days, Blanche and Rose are giddy with excitement. Always the party pooper, Dorothy reminds them that Pepe was picked up at a bus stop. Sophia and Pepe are back to practicing, hopefully just his aim and not his strength, because if that's the case, yeesh, you're in trouble, Pepe. 
Unable to stand such ridiculous behavior, Queen Pepe, that's for party pooper, not Pepe, Dorothy, is reminding her mother that she is not a professional boxer, so why is she bothering with training him? That's when we learn that Sophia was the Don King of Sicily, back when she too had large square hair. This is a great confession or reveal because she doesn't explain anything more about fighting, nor do the girls ask any questions. So we can just assume that the only reason she was known as that was because of her hair. But Don King wasn't promoting bigger fights until the 1970s, long after Sophia had moved away from Italy. Oh, I guess the girls didn't ask further questions because they knew she was being colorful again. Ah, she got me. Pepe has now moved on to jumping rope. Crossingrope.com tells us that fighters use a jump rope to improve stamina, strengthen their arms, shoulders, and wrists, and burn fat. Getting excited about the temporary job of boxer manager, Rose offers to aid in the training process as well. Sophia thinks that's a great idea. It'll give Pepe a good example as to why he should wear protective gear, especially on his head. Rose doesn't even seem to hear Sophia's jab as she was mesmerized by the jump rope, and it's that exercise that she would like to help with. Approaching Pepe's side, Rose begins to sing a schoolyard tune, A My Name Is. It starts with your name, Rose choosing Alice, your partner's name, in this case Alf, where you're from, so she chose the made-up land of Anderhoven, and what you sell, antlers, each round going through the alphabet. Here, I'll let Donnie and Marie provide you with another example. Dorothy cannot understand why everyone is worried about training this guy. They're going to get their money even if he doesn't win, so why not just take it easy? Because, Sophia finally shares, if he does win, they will get an additional $10,000. Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday! Without a word, Dorothy pivots to Pepe, telling him to get to fighting and for Sophia to blast those tunes. They've got some training to do. No offense, Dorothy, but whatever it is you're doing as part of your training, well, let's just say Rose was probably more helpful with that little song and Dorothy is with these moves. It's bedtime on Monday night, and if you look closely at the house, you can see someone pass in front of a mysterious window. Spooky. Still staying in her daughter's room, Sophia, in her pink nightgown, is about to fall asleep and is urging Dorothy, who is sitting straight up, wearing her lace all the way up to the chin white nightgown, to do the same. Why, mothers have been telling daughters to rest before tomorrow's big fight for eons. Fine, what Sophia said and how she said it wasn't exactly as traditional and warm as Harriet Nelson from one of the original sitcoms, Ozzie and Harriet. Well, they're having a tea and a fashion show at the women's club this afternoon. It's my turn to make the sandwiches. Hey, maybe you'll take my sandwiches over for me. No, 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 uh, that's okay. If Thorny can take the potato salad over for Catherine, I can take the sandwiches over for you. Oh, well, thank you, dear. That's very nice of you. And don't eat any. Uh, what'd you say? You heard me. <laughs> Sleep shall continue to evade Dorothy as she is too nervous for what tomorrow brings. And no, Sophia, it's not the stress of a Division B fight, but the money that she casually threw at a boxer, something Dorothy is still upset about and is finally able to confront her with. Instead of giving a straight answer, Sophia sits up straight and begins a story. 
we are finally asked to picture it, the it being Sicily in 1920. Two girls left their village for fame and a meal without the mint family plant oregano. They end up at a ship that was leaving for the new world. Yes, Dorothy, the new world. It sounds a lot cooler than we were catching a ride to Baltimore. They learned that the ride, even for the cheapest ticket, would be about 900,000 lira, or what she jokes would have been a buck and a quarter in U.S. dollars, because of the horrible exchange rate. Actually, in 1920, the real conversion would have been $2,087. When they filmed the episode in 1988, the actual exchange rate for 900,000 lira was $12,606, or what would be $31,376 today. The cost for the ticket was the exact amount that each girl had in their savings. So one of the girls chose to gamble and buy a boat ticket. The other decided to buy a boat ticket as well, but for a 12-hour ferry ride to Sardinia and to put the rest in savings. Dorothy guesses that this was Sophia's story of coming to America, or a colorful version of it at least. But no, Sophia was the ferry rider. Her friend, the one that took the boat, was eventually the head of Israel, Golda Meir. This is really colorful as Golda was actually born in Russia, came to America in 1906, and then eventually immigrated to the land that is quite the topic of conversation right now, Palestine. Golda would go on to sign the Israel Declaration of Independence in 1948. She was the fourth prime minister of Israel from 1969 to 1974. And past that, there's not really much else I can go into without bumming everyone out, so we will just say we hope for peace for everyone because things are really terrible right now. With a screech to her voice, Dorothy refuses to believe this story, but it's been a long walk in the park to get to this punchline. No, this isn't colorful, Sophia insists. Why, if she had taken that route, she could have married Golda's husband, the perfecter of the hot dog, Oscar Mayer. Fun fact, did you know there was a real Oscar Mayer? I did not know that. There is a real, well, there was a real Oscar Mayer. He was, no surprise, born in Germany. He immigrated to the U.S. and started manhandling meats in Detroit before moving to Chicago. He eventually opened a German meat market, and the people went wild for it. The shop was super popular, leading to it being involved in the World's Fair and starting a delivery service. Moving to Chicago, that's a that was a great move for Oscar Mayer. That's a that's a great town for tube meats. Just ask Abe Froman. Hi, I'm Abe Froman. You're Abe Froman. That's right. I'm Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. In 1904, the brand Oscar Mayer was born, and they started selling sausages, hams, bacon, and wieners nationwide. The rest is history. Let me guess. You think I'm about to throw to the Oscar Mayer song, don't you? Well, did you know there was another song for Oscar Mayer? It's not good. Here, have a listen. And Oscar Mayer wiener by itself or on a bun. We roast them all for flavor. That's why they're lots of fun. I say you can't teach a new kid old tricks. Let me paint the picture for this ad real quick for you listening. It is a beach, live action beach. Next to this four-year-old, three-year-old boy is Foghorn Leghorn, the cartoon chicken. He's fully naked. He's fully naked. And he's pushing, he's hustling meats, I guess, to save himself. It's kind of like the whole Chick-fil-A thing with cows. So he's trying to get this kid to eat pig anuses. 
and talking about it. And then he and a friend start eating. They're just raw dog and these dogs. When he goes with a friend, they're just they. The two of them are no each, buns. Nothing. They they're holding it like uh, like a like a slim jim, like a popsicle. You can't hold a hot dog like that unless you're just in your house. Small children holding hot dogs on a beach with no bun, covered in sand. So much sand and hot ketchup. Corn relish. What even? I've never. I mean, I can gather what corn relish is. I've never seen that as a condiment in my life. Me neither. Well, it looks exactly like you would expect. If you'll recall, before this bizarre boat tale began, Dorothy asked why Sophia did all of this with the money, a point that she is finally getting to. From that ferry ticket to her life with Sal, Sophia was the straight-laced one. She was safe. Heck, Sal was so reckless, he gambled away his business with Max. So now, here Sophia is in the twilight of her life, and here came this opportunity. She not only had the means, but she had a dream. And in her mind, Sal was standing right by her, telling her to take this risk for once in her life. Her intention was never to upset the girls. She just got caught up. That's sweet and all, but right about here, I'd be calling her out for taking a boyfriend to Italy, going bowling with friends, other random trips she's taken with brand new friends. I'm just not buying this whole, I wanted to, for once, take a risk, pity party. The real answer is that she's addicted to the rush of the impulse and she couldn't resist, never even considering the consequences or how the girls would feel. It also is not bought by Dorothy. Sophia is finally real for a moment and apologizes for being an idiot. As anxiety takes over Dorothy, Sophia once again comforts her. Literally all Pepe has to do is step into the ring and boom, boom, 10 grand. So, of course, right at that moment, Rose in a blue terry cloth house robe and Blanche in her silk turquoise pajamas and pink floral robe have come bursting into the room with the worst news possible. Pepe is missing. I'm out there spending too much money on clothes trying to look like maybe I'm under 30 so that somebody will hire me and you're sitting in here whining like an idiot. This was found out when the good cop and terrible nutritionist Rose went to take him some good luck on the fight tomorrow, milk and cookies. Screeching and scattering, the girls scramble to get out of the room to go on a search. All but Sophia, that is. She's taking the window as an exit. If she throws herself out on her own, it'll hurt a lot less than when Dorothy does it once the money is lost for good. We're now at a warehouse. Ooh. The girls have all changed from their jammies into some comfy clothes that are still ten times nicer than what I wear nowadays to look decent. Dorothy is in a gray sweatsuit and turtleneck. Blanche is in her teddy bear brown sweater and leggings. And, of course, kitten heels. Rose is in a mauve, not sweatsuit, but kind of that thinner fabric, like when you would go to Walgreens and get a sweatshirt, but it's not really comfortable or soft. Caboosing this affair is Sophia in a teal hoodie and dark teal sweats. Desperate and unsure as to where to even start, the girls went through Pepe's room and found only one address, that warehouse something Rose and Blanche still feel bad about doing. Well, Blanche only feels a little bad, but mostly horny after seeing his little boxing shorts hanging up in the closet. Oh, and that provocative nickname, which is the name of a sports equipment brand that makes items primarily for boxing and was founded by 17-year-old Jacob Golem in 1910, not a comment on Pepe's sexual virility ever last. Realizing they don't know where they are or what goes on there, the girls are ready to call it quits. Blanche wants to save their behinds by getting out of there and kissing the money goodbye. 
Sophia doesn't see the value in that. Blanche is rich and behind. You'll recall she's a big music fan. But she's lacking in money. It's agreed. Get the hell out of this creepy place and go home. As they turn to leave, though, they hear a piano and a violin in a distant room. Curious, they go inspect. As they enter the room with the two musicians, they are shocked to see that Pepe is on the violin. As someone who played the violin for nearly a decade, not well, of course, but for a long time, I can tell you that that boy is not playing that instrument, like not even close, and I do really always love to see that. I used multiple apps to try to find out what song he was playing, but nothing came up. It has me wondering if it was cheaper to just hire two musicians to come up with a 10-second tune than to get the rights to something else. Never one to resist an oh-boy opportunity, Sophia calls it like she sees it, which is that the man at the piano must be working with the other fighter, and they are trying to turn Pepe into a, quote, sissy boy via a musical instrument. To the sentiment and language, we give Sophia an oh boy. It's clear the ladies are upset, so Pepe speaks up in English. He needs to explain to them why he snuck out of the house, why he used them, and why he's all of a sudden speaking English more clearly than famed mumblemouth Oscar winner Sylvester Stallone. You're f- dead! You're f- dead! You're f- Pepe confesses. On Wednesday, the day after the fight, he is set to audition for the private performing arts conservatory in New York, Juilliard. Less than a thousand students are enrolled in Juilliard. Those who have attended have gone on to win 12 national medals, 16 Pulitzers, 105 Grammys, 62 Tonys, 47 Emmys, 24 Oscars, and they have two EGOTs, one of which being Miss Viola Davis. Sophia's not buying it, saying that it's as likely as her being a sex worker contracted by former televangelist and famous boo-hooer after getting caught having affairs, Jimmy Swaggart. This is actually all true, though. Every night, Pepe has been meeting with his teacher, the man at the piano, to prepare for his audition. Playing Charlie the Pianist is Alfred Dennis. Some of his work was on The Monkees, Batman, I Dream of Jeannie, Get Smart, The Flying Nun, Kojak, Chips, Rockford Files, Fantasy Island, Knott's Landing, A-Team, Who's the Boss, Perfect Strangers, Life Goes On, Murphy Brown, Get Shorty, Tracy Takes On, Suddenly Susan, Caroline in the City, Party of Five, Mr. Deeds, Catch Me If You Can, Bruce Almighty, Monk, Entourage, Reba, Gilmore Girls, Party Down, Raising Hope, and of course, Lala. Learning of these secrets, Dorothy wants to know what else Pepe is hiding now that they'll be out their $3,000. He knows this looks bad, but he promises he's still going to be in the fight. He needs the money, or purse, to cover tuition should he be accepted. Rose can't believe Juilliard requires students to have purses. Dorothy can't believe how dumb her friend is, and she wishes Pepe would go back to speaking Spanish. Then Rose might understand everything better. What Blanche can't understand is why Pepe wasn't just honest about all of this from the start. He was worried that if he said, hey, I'm a boxer, but my real passion is the violin, so I'm going to be heading out at night to go practice, and I'm only in the fight to pay for Juilliard, they probably wouldn't have put up the entrance fee. A small detail Sophia forgot to mention. We don't know how much that cost is, but it's agreed that it'll come out of Rose's cut. Dorothy still doesn't get why he chose to pretend to only speak or understand Spanish. Well, he did that because he's not stupid. He's a Cuban boxer. 
he's just supposed to know boom boom. Like when most people are shocked by a secret, Dorothy is offended. Pepe made the assumption that they would judge him for speaking English or not fitting into some terrible stereotype. Dorothy can be pissed all she wants, but Pepe has the receipts. Okay, so you aren't judgmental. But you all not only bought into the idea of who Kid Pepe was, you didn't do anything to make things better. He didn't say this, but I am. You let Sophia verbally abuse him, scare him with threats of immigration. You didn't try to talk to him to get to know him as a person, Dorothy. So yes, he may be a fighter, but he's a Cuban man, a human, who, just like them, has passions, dimension, a life of his own. Not long after Pepe fights back against their stereotype, he slips into a poem from William Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. In the play, it is to show how similar Jewish and Christian people are to each other and to the rest of the world. The character Shylock says, If you prick us, do we not bleed? It's a moving argument and a really fantastic monologue, which Pepe was potentially going to use as his audition for the actor's studio. Annoyed, Sophia doesn't understand why so many fighters want to be actors. Some famous examples being Tony Danza, Roberto Duran, Mike Tyson, and Tex Cobb. She wishes there were more cases of actors turning to boxing, if only to witness comedian and notorious a-hole Chevy Chase get beat up. It was the first SNL that I ever went to, and Chevy Chase was like one of the guests on the show, and he was obsessed with getting his kids' No Doubt autographs. He's like, you spelled my goddamn kid's name wrong, and he grabbed this intern's arm, pulled it out, like, can I do it to your arm here? Yeah. Pulled his arm, like, look, and he took a mark, and he's like, that wrote on her arm like that. He's like, that's my kid's name. Have her do it again with that name. Oh, I actually know three. One, he was mean to my mom. My mom was in a liquor store in New York. She's like, oh my God, Chevy Chase, I am such a fan of you. He goes, you lady. So I'm slap Rob Hubel in the face. We were backstage and he was kind of hanging out with us. Rob's like, hey, Chevy, I'm such a fan. Nice to meet you. Chevy Chase just, bam, slapped him across the face with no provocation. Provocation, I think in his mind was, that's a bit. That's what you guys do at UCB. You do bits. That's my bit. Too bad Sophia wasn't around for celebrity deathmatch on MTV or the real-life fights presented by Celebrity Boxing on Fox, of course. Have we talked about Randall Tex Cobb on this show before? I don't believe we have. Well, he was quite a mumble mouth, but a, <laughs> a really good actor, I thought. I really liked what he brought to films. And he's actually in that movie, Digstown, that I really love, too. I've always appreciated his... Um, shaved bear presence in a movie. <laughs> Truly. Uh, Raising Arizona in particular. Listeners might know him best from Raising Arizona, the mean biker man that I don't think says anything. Uh, he says a few things, I think, at the at the unpainted Arizona furniture store oh, right. when he's talking to Nathan Arizona. But yeah, he's just a big, sweaty man who clearly has had his nose broken so many You've times. You've never heard a more stuffy nose. And it just lays flat on his face. It, there's, there's no cartilage, no cartilage left no. in that thing. <laughs> but I believe, well, I'm not sure what he was like, but I have a feeling that I feel like I've read that he was cool, but I don't know if that's true. That he was like, had I a bunch of kids it. and was just like, a, was like a bear, a teddy bear. Yeah, I would believe so, it. Most big guys like that. Yeah, I'll find out. Well, some other things he was in was Walker, Texas Ranger, Vice, The X-Files, Liar, 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 Liar. Oh, that's, oh, he, <laughs> he's a defendant going into court. That's funny. Highlander, Naked Gun, 33 and a third, Ace Ventura, Married with Children, Ernest Goes to Jail, Fletch Lives, MacGyver, Police Academy 4, Moonlighting, Miami Vice, The Golden Child, not The Golden Girls. Charlie, the piano teacher, will not allow for Pepe to fight. 
His biggest concern being that if Pepe damages his hands, you know, by punching something, he won't be able to play the violin as well as he does if he ever does again. But Pepe promises not only will he be careful, but once this fight is over, he is never fighting again. Dorothy interrupts their intense conversation, asking if they're done performing a scene from the 1939 William Holden and Barbara Stanwyck picture, Golden Boy, which is about a violinist boxer. You're in a draft. I just had a tough workout at the gym. Borneo says my left jab's getting to be streamlined. That's fine. A fighter needs a good left. You don't like my hair? Sure, I like it. Women are fools for curly hair. But in the ring, it's a different story. They'll kid you to death. All right, let them. I'll do as I please. I'm sorry I blew up. You're a tough one to figure out, all right. So are you. Say, they have concerts in the park every Wednesday night. Will you come with me sometime? Turning to his naysayer, Charlie begs Dorothy and the rest of the ladies to undo the pressure they have put on him. He's been training him for years and knows how talented Pepe is. He can't have him throwing it all away so close to this audition. And yes, Blanche, this does mean losing your money. Rose is moved by Charlie's begging. It's clear how much this means to both of them. Rose may not know what to say in response, but Sophia does, which is a polite, fat chance, Grandpa. And with that remark, she's out the door. Back at the house, the girls are sitting around the kitchen table, emotionally eating some cheesecake, among other snacks. Coming into the kitchen is Sophia, who is not happy to find the girls so sullen. Besides, there's nothing to be upset about. Peppy said he wants to fight, and they need him to fight, and the fight is happening, and that's that. After clearing the cheesecake, Sophia demands that everyone just gets back to bed. Stopping her mother, Dorothy tells her that they need to consider every aspect of the situation. They are quite literally holding his fate and his hands in their hands, something Blanche has experience with, except fate might have been a little nickname for a body part. For this story, Blanche was dating the quarterback in high school. He was so good, college scouts were coming by to watch him play. Out of all of the options, she thought he was going to go to Notre Dame because he needed help spelling it. She was hoping he would go to Alabama. She wasn't worried about the distance if they wound up in Indiana. Isn't that also like the weirdest place for Notre Dame? Every time I read that or I'm reminded that Notre Dame is in Indiana, I'm surprised. Actually, with any school. Oh, this Ivy League, it's in Ohio. I don't know where any colleges are, I think, Never. because I didn't really go to any colleges. Or have any interest in finding out where they were. No. Cornell? No. New York? Is that in New York? I don't know. I have no idea. Yale? Uh, Yale is... New York? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Notre Dame, I thought, was like Massachusetts because it's fighting Irish, and so maybe it's... No. No, it's Indiana. Rudy was in Indiana. If the boyfriend had chosen Notre Dame, it wasn't the distance that had Blanche concerned. She was worried about all the priests that would be wandering around all the time, hindering their ability to perform some of her favorite extracurricular activities. So when it came time to make a choice, he shocked her by choosing the local community college that didn't even have a football team. What? His answer as to why he chose that school was a proposal. He put a ring on her finger and asked her to be wed, which was probably why he wanted to go to school just down the street. After staring at the ring for 30 minutes, Blanche told him that she could not accept it. Interjecting her romantic conclusion, Rose assumes the rejection was so that the man could go on to follow his dreams and not be hindered by a relationship. 
in real life, Blanche's versions of things, was that the diamond was glass and the band was cheap copper. That ring would literally not do. Trying to see the positive, Dorothy points out that, well, everything worked out for the best. She wound up with George, and that kid probably went on to do okay with football. Well, Blanche shares, he was so devastated, just devastated by her rejecting the proposal and ring that he stopped playing football and started holding men's fate in his hands, if you know what I mean. Hot dogs! She said that the whole ordeal turned him gay. You can't say that. This, of course, is a ludicrous statement, even for Blanche. Dorothy, the educator, educates her. You are either gay or you're not. There's no turning about it. Well, Blanche has an argument for that. Ah, ah, ah. If he had been a gay man when he was proposing, he would have picked a better ring. That's quite the stereotype, Blanche. But it is kind of funny. But also, oh boy. Still trying to get anyone to listen, Sophia again tells them to go to bed. The girls can't. They don't feel like they've talked through everything enough. But what is there to talk about? If Pepe shows up, they get their money easy as that. Sure, but Rose reminds Sophia of the delicate hand situation. Could they live with themselves if he was unable to play music after the fight? Blanche puts it out in the universe that he might just get knocked out. Well, yes, Rose, that was a mean thought to have. That isn't what Blanche is asking about when she wonders if everyone is thinking what she is. After that response, Dorothy sets a new house rule. Rose, you should not be the first to respond to any question. So how about your tubing burbles? Rose is confused, no surprise, so Blanche explains. Why don't they just ask Pepe to throw the fight? He gets in the ring so they get their money. He gets knocked out so his hands are safe. It works for everyone, except for Pepe's brain cells. Sophia is pretty sure that since throwing a match is an honored tradition in Sicily, she'll be able to talk him into doing it. I'm sure that'll go over really well. Hey, Pepe, we want our money, and we don't really care about you getting your money for school, so could you just take, like, a really hard hit to the face? Thank you. We are at another new location, the Circle Arena, and inside it's a dream sequence from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Or it just looks that way because of all the fog and the fact that the girls are huddled around the corner of a fake boxing ring talking to Pepe. As he sits on his stool getting ready for the fight, they want to talk to him about throwing it. But he's a smidge distracted by looking at the very large man across the way that he's about to fight. Dorothy takes over the conversation, but Sophia interrupts with some clarity. Why don't you pretend to get hit and take a dive? It'll save your hands. But Pepe won't fall for this. Get it? <laughs> it's unfair. It's unsportsmanlike. It's immoral. This time, it's actually Rose who fights this. Okay, falling down is immoral. Well, then what do you call two grown-ass men getting into a public fight that is cheered for and bet on? Hot dogs! Speaking of betting, throwing the fight isn't really unfair to gamblers, as gambling is illegal in Florida. This may surprise you since Florida is Florida and all, but they have pretty strict gambling laws. Even if the gamblers are who Pepe is concerned about, Sophia tries to put him at ease by telling him that it is so unexpected for him to win, the shark at bingo wouldn't even give odds, meaning the guy who handles illegal bids didn't bother with what the winnings would be if Pepe won. There's really nothing to say no to. No one gets hurt, no one loses, everyone wins. As the bell rings, we finally hear Gonzalez. He's a real bully, too, calling Mama Pepe a tramp? 
That voice actually belongs to Victor Contreras. He had 15 other credits, including Simon and Simon, The Steve Harvey Show, The John Larroquette Show, and several TV movies. The fight begins, and right away, as part of the dive or not, Pepe is clocked in the mouth and he falls to the ground. The next day, the ladies are escorting Pepe to his Miami-based audition for the New York School. There, in the same questionable warehouse, we find Charlie at the piano and three judges at a table. The ladies all wish him well and stand off to the side as he gets to it. Grabbing the instrument, he looks it over. Before he starts, he just has one question. Does he, um, play the violin? With a shocked look, the woman at the table looks at her counterparts. Pepe asks if he can come back tomorrow after his brain has settled down post-punching, but that's not an option. He would have to wait a whole year to be able to audition again. Playing the critic, or judge, is Pamela Kosh. She appeared in Hotel, Dynasty, Murder, She Wrote, Highway to Heaven, Mama's Family, Matlock, Jake and the Fat Man, Saved by the Bell, Days of Our Lives, Dr. Quinn, Northern Exposure, Star Trek Next Gen, Frasier, Murphy Brown, Family Matters, Ned and Stacy, Pushing Daisies, Desperate Housewives, ER, and Gilmore Girls, which, fun fact, she was an actual Gilmore girl as her husband was Walter Gilmore. She was also in our favorite, Beyond Belief, playing Regina in The Gathering, and of course, Lala. Disappointed in himself, Pepe turns to Charlie. Seeing an opportunity for a different kind of audition, Dorothy slowly tells Pepe that he won't have another chance because he's Cuban. It takes everyone a second, but then all three ladies tell him, because you're Cuban, hoping it will trigger the same beautiful performance of Billy Shakespeare as it had the other day. And it does. Looking back to the table of judges, Pepe goes back into the poem with the same passion. The ladies watch on with emotion as Pepe gives the performance of a lifetime. Ending with a round of applause, the woman doesn't hesitate to tell him that he is the best they've seen all week. It's a happy note to leave on, so Sophia has to bring us down with a very legitimate reality check. Back when Hollywood was even more white than it is now, I know, that's hard to believe, there weren't roles for people with any kind of non-European ethnicity. So sadly, she's right. He'll get into acting school, and even with that on his resume, he'll probably be resigned to being arrested on every cop show on the air. It's not like there's a Cuban Macbeth. Although in 2022, there was The Tragedy of Macbeth starring Denzel Washington. So, progress. Even if Sophia struggles to be optimistic, she can still fake a smile and be happy for Pepe's success. With a group handshake and invasion of his space, the girls congratulate Pepe, and he's on his way to acting school. Coco, thoughts on this episode as a first-time viewing? It was okay. I think that's a perfect rating for this I, episode. I laughed a few times, but I thought the the plotting just seemed a little lazy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it just didn't kind of hit with the acting stuff. I was actually kind of like confused by that. Mm. Not like confused, but it just didn't kind of, it just didn't, it just didn't really make sense. Yeah, it's a thing. very sitcom episode. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, we just had Gotta Have Hope and they were all on the same storyline you know the plot line involved all oh, four yeah. of them and and it was a really good episode and it worked result, so like well a one. Yeah. yeah and then this one they're all on the same page and 
I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the mix of kind of racist jokes, you know, when she's yelling immigration or whatever, like that's not really ha ha. But then at the end, it's like a lesson has been learned. Not to judge a book by its cover. Yeah. And so it's kind of having this Golden Girls moment of reality, but everything else is so far fetched. Just like suddenly Sophia's purchased a boxer and now he's living in the house and he's also a violinist and he's. There's just a lot of moving parts to it. And yeah, I agree. It just doesn't have that same hit. You know what it feels like? Mm. It feels like an empty nest a little bit as though they were trying to create this branching off character. Yeah, because they gave him a lot of a lot of screen time. Yes, a lot of screen time, a lot of story. And a lot of monologuing. A lot of jokes you know, or, or part of the joke. Hot dogs! While this might not be the funniest or most beloved episode, it does sneak in some good lessons. First of all, don't be racist. Just because someone is from another place or has a certain job doesn't mean that they will meet every stereotype you know. People from every aspect of life, even if they're from Cuba, are allowed to be multidimensional. A mom is allowed to take pole dancing classes. A bus driver is allowed to be an author. Your teacher is allowed to be in a band. It's not fun for everyone to be perceived as being in a box, even if they are a boxer. Maybe another rim shot. Another lesson is to chase your dreams. Even if expectations are put upon you, it doesn't mean you have to fulfill them. So yeah, you can finish a task and not let people down, like completing a boxing match. But just because one dream or skill has been followed, it doesn't mean you can't change your mind and pursue what you really love. So in the end, you do you, boo. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we learn what until death do us part for a friendship really means with till death do we volley. Just sit back there and relax and enjoy life, huh? Life is short. So are you. A mine with hair on it. Because we all got duped into the, you know. The lie. The lie. The lie. Yeah, yeah. The get married, go to school, get some debt, have a kid. And you can't talk about how miserable you are or how difficult it is because then you're bad. Man, those things can go rotten. <laughs> <laughs> Worse than any batch of apples I've ever, I've ever, I've seen. Owen Cunningham Wilson is 55 whoa that movie was awful and I hope you no one liked it because it wasn't good it made me feel sad we were watching you were having an anxiety attack and my body was vibrating I had I could not sit I could barely sit on the couch I'd be maybe dead by now brown what (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All because of a, a busted toe. All because toe. you stubbed your toe. That's right. Make sure I didn't get blood poisoning and die. Well, you did have blood poisoning. Shut it, you. <laughs> oh, wait. Interest rate. <laughs> Was that a great big fat account? <laughs> They've been through enough. Runs. I wish all the banks would get the runs. <laughs> and your bank is full of foam. Cursed with diarrhea. Gary Busey gets cut in half. <laughs> Stop trying to make vagina job happen.
Well, it looks like corn relish. I have shinned. Go into the, he goes into the kitchen and he sees like a pot of oatmeal on the on the stove and he like dips a spoon in it to mix it up and there's blood in it. Ah! Scarred me for life. He's been rendered Ron Perlman. It's not. That's funny what I said. Yes, it is. And I liked it a lot. <laughs> Frazier, Murphy Brown, family mem- family members. He was often a voice double for Joe Pesci. Wow. Isn't that fun? F- the star of Gone Fishing? <laughs> Eight heads in a duffel bag? <laughs> the super? When you bump into a teller and you're not feeling stellar, diarrhea. When you're sliding into the safe and you... Shoot some liquid hot beef. <laughs> How dare you? Beef? <laughs> beef? I was trying to help you out. <laughs> you couldn't get it. I couldn't. I said beef. But you did. <laughs> when you fill out a deposit slip and you feel a little deposit slip, diarrhea. You're f- dead! You're f- dead! You're f- Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be 